0: am an amateur landscaper, that uh, I'm, I've become that guy, that it's a good way, I kind of enjoy it, to kind of Clear my head, and so I like to take. And to me, it's an amazing thing to take these really u- ugly bulbs, or these really ugly plugs, or these these plants, or just kind of these like green things, and you stick them in the ground, and you water them, and you fertilize them, and you arrange them in a particular way, and at a particular set in time, they all come into this amazing bloom. And so I've become that guy, right? Like wherever I go, I kind of check out landscaping. And that's just, that's kind of uncomfortable for me to admit a little bit, but like my family, we're going into Disney World, right? And so all of them are looking at Space Mountain and they're checking out all the things and seeing the characters. And I'm like, would y'all look at this edging? Have you ever seen anything like this before? You know, and uh, and so be, I've become that guy. And so I notice landscape and look, I don't judge your landscaping, okay? So like invite me over for a meal, all right? If, if landscape is not your thing, that's fine. Okay, don't, don't be self-conscious, anything like that. But, but, but it's just one of the things that I've noticed. And you know what I've, I've come to realize about landscaping and, and kind of bringing that into the world of pastoral ministry? Because you see, in pastoral ministry, one of the things that I've told you about that is it's a lot like being a first responder, right? Right? That one of the responsibilities that I have is in the messiness of people's lives, in the hardships of people's lives, in the difficulties of people's lives. Like when everybody else is running away from the drama and everybody else is running away from the messiness, I kind of have to run at it, right? And so you come up and you pull into somebody's house, and what I've discovered is is that beautiful landscaping can be camouflaged for a wrecked house. That beautiful landscaping can be camouflage, or it can be a facade. For a wrecked house, I told the teenagers at winter camp a story about when I was a youth pastor. When I was a youth pastor, I got a call one day um, from a family, and they were desperate. They they were kind of on a a last-ditch effort kind of mode, and so they called me. They had gotten my number. They weren't really attached to our church, but they had gotten my number from somebody that was, and their daughter was just in the throes of rebellion. She was running away from home, basically throwing herself. She was about 16, 17, throwing herself at any guy that would have her, getting in any car that would leave Oxford and just getting in that car and going. She was self-harming. She was suicidal. She, wherever her parents were, as long as she wasn't there, she was okay. And so I get a call one day from just a desperate mom saying, would you come over to our house and talk to our daughter? We found her. She's run away again. We've got her home. Would you come and talk to her? Now, it's hard to have that conversation anyway with somebody that you have no relationship with. But of course, yes, I, I will come and I'll help. And I remember going to give me the address, and it's in Oxford. And I go, and I remember pulling up, and it was... Behind a gated community. And so they let me in, I get behind the gate, and I remember pulling in to the front driveway of this house. And I remember sitting there, and it was one of the most pristine yards I had ever seen, one of the most stunning homes I had ever witnessed. And I remember sitting there in the driveway of this house. Astounded by the irony of the scene. That from the outside looking in, this looked perfect. From the outside looking in, it was as good as it gets. From the outside looking in, this is what others aspired to. From the outside looking in, it looked like a magazine. It looked like something that was straight off of a movie set, straight out of a fairy tale. But I knew what was happening behind those doors. I knew about the dysfunction in the marriage. I knew about the rebellion in the oldest daughter. I knew about the withdrawal of the youngest daughter. I knew that in that house, that landscaping was nothing more than lipstick on a corpse. What we're going to see in our text this morning is that when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and when Jesus arrives in the temple and when Jesus sees the worship of God among the people of God that that is what he realizes or that's what he finds that's what he notices that among the people of God that from the exterior what he sees is impressive. The worship looks good and the temple is sparkling and the temple complex is bustling but from the, and from the outside, it looks stunning. From the outside, it looks picturesque and anybody who was anything would have looked from the outside looking in and been amazed and thought, what a fervent people. But behind the scenes, beneath the surface, at the heart of the matter, it was a wrecked house. It was nothing more than lipstick on a corpse. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to turn to what is really one of the most bizarre and strange scenes from the life of Jesus. A scene that if you've ever read your Bible all the way through, or you've read the New Testament all the way through, or the Gospel of Matthew or Mark all the way through, and you got to this one, as I did the first time I read it all the way through, and the second time I read it all the way through, I, I thought, I thought, what in the world is that even talking about, all right? I can remember Andrew and I, the first time I was reading it all, we were meeting and talking about it. And us sitting there talking like, what happened there? And we never really even figured that out, all right? So this is a strange scene. Maybe if you've always wondered what this means, we can bring some kind of resolution to that this morning. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 18. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Matthew chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 18. God's word says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. So we come to a strange scene this morning, right? We come to a strange scene. So in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is known for kind of getting to the point of the text. Okay, So he, he kind of he gives us a, lot, a longer gospel. It's the longest of all of the gospel accounts. And so he gives us the most information. But one of the things that he does is a lot of the times with the story, he, does it, he eliminates a lot of the detail and gets to the main idea of what he wants us to do. It is no different in this particular text. And so with the way that Matthew writes it for the American eye, the non-Jewish eye, remember that Matthew was primarily written to a Jewish audience. For the American eye, it's hard to pick up on the timeline of what Matthew is writing. And that's really important to the story. We can see that clearer if we were reading Mark's account in Mark chapter 11. See, if we're reading Matthew's account, it appears as though this happens in an instant, right? It appears as though this happens all at one time in like 30 seconds and it's over. But what we learn about in Mark's account, in Mark chapter 11, is that this didn't happen in 30 seconds, this happened over a period of 24 hours. That Jesus comes into Jerusalem, into Judea uh, on, uh, on Sunday with a triumphal entry, and he's walked 25 miles in from Galilee, right, and he's awoken and he's hungry. Now you can imagine after a long journey that you would be hungry. So he wakes up and he goes and he sees this fig tree and then he, he sees, finds no figs and then he curses it. Then he goes in and he flips the tables. That, then the next day or then that morning he goes in, and he flips the tables. That's what we saw last week, right? He goes has the whole scene in the temple which would have taken quite a considerable amount of time. He goes back to bed and then the next morning is when they come and they find it. Now, maybe you would say, but in verses 19 and 20, it says, at once. Now, in the Greek language, that verb, you can can translate that same phrase as being quickly, okay? At once. And you have to place this in the context, okay? Horticulturally, for a tree to wither and die in 24 hours is for it to die at once. It is for it to die immediately. It is for it to die very quickly quickly, okay? So it's important for us to understand that a lot has transpired over this period of time. A lot has taken place because Jesus is here giving us a commentary on what's happening in the temple. He's saying something very specific for us. So Jesus wakes up and he's hungry. Now, it's important for us to remember that Jesus is entirely man. We forget that sometimes, right? And so Jesus gets hungry just like you and I get hungry. And so he wakes up being famished and Mark tells us in his account that it's not the time. It's, it would have been late March, early April, the Passover time. And so it's not the time in Palestine in which figs are typically in season. Now there are a variety of fig type trees. Most of them would have not been in season, but there would have been some fig trees that would have been bearing leaves. There would have been some tree, fig trees that would have come in early. And so it stands out, this particular fig tree that Jesus said, Sees stands out among all the other fig trees because this one is covered in leaves. And being covered in leaves, it gives the appearance that it has fruit. That if a fig tree is covered in leaves, then the assumption is that it at least has green figs. And in Jesus' day, if you've walked 25 miles from Galilee and you don't have a McDonald's hanging out somewhere, even if they're green figs, even if they're very uh, even if they're not completely ripe figs, you're gonna eat them. Figs, because man you need some sustenance to eat you can kind of equate this in your mind you know it's like 2 a.m and you're on the interstate somewhere in North Dakota you know and like there's just nothing it's just desolate and you're just blowing through and you're like I'm hungry I'm hungry I'm hungry and then one of those glorious green signs shows up right and there's a cookout okay and you're thinking yes A hamburger, a quesadilla, some onion rings, and a milkshake. That would do me just right. And so you pull off the exit. So this is Jesus. He's pulled off the exit. He's going in. And then you get there, and the lights are out. The chairs are on the table, right? So, that, so Jesus gets there, the fig tree, it's covered in leaves. It appears as though it's got fruit. It appears as though it's going to feed him, give him what he needs, give him what he's looking for. But he gets there, and there's no figs on the tree. Not green, not ripe, nothing. And Jesus does something that kind of hits us funny, right? Right? Jesus does something that kind of like, it takes us a minute to like process this. Jesus curses the tree. You will never bear fruit again. That is the last fig you're ever going to see, tree. How about that? Now you can just imagine the disciples are taken aback, right? I mean, can you imagine seeing there? by the way, this is the only instance in the entire account of Jesus's ministry where we see him using, where we see him performing a miracle to curse and not to heal, not to deliver, not to save. So Jesus is doing something. So as strange as a scene as this is, as odd as this is, we need to see that this is strange but it's intentional. It's strange but it's intentional. That Jesus is doing this, but he's doing this with a purpose. You see, there are people and they will come to this passage and they will say, see, see, Jesus has a flawed character just like you and I. That Jesus is a man just like you and I. That Jesus got hungry just like we get hungry. And that when Jesus didn't get his way, Jesus throws a hissy fit, just like you and I throw hissy fits. That what we have here is Jesus being a petulant child. That Jesus comes, he wants some fig preserves, Jesus wants a fig newton, Jesus didn't get the figs that he wanted, and Jesus, not getting the figs that he wanted, throws a fit like a petulant child, throws a hissy fit. And so obviously, Jesus has a flawed character, just like what we have. Oh, how to grossly misunderstand what's happening here. Oh, how to grossly misunderstand what Jesus, is ha- what Jesus is doing here. See, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that after me, there is going to come a prophet like me that is greater than me. After me, there is going to come a prophet. See, Moses was the prophet that met face to face with God. He was the prophet that met face to face with God so much so that the glory of God covered his face and he had to wear a veil so that it would not blind the people of God. And so Moses said, but after me, there is going to come a prophet that doesn't speak face to face with God on behalf of God, but no, there's going to come a prophet that doesn't speak on behalf of God, but that speaks as God, that speaks authoritatively as God himself. He was foreshadowing the Christ, foreshadowing the Messiah. And do you know how the prophets often spoke? See, the way that the prophets would often speak, the prophets would often do things that seemed out of character for them. They would often do things that would seem out of character for a prophet of God to bring, um, to bring attention, to bring focus upon the word of God, to bring focus upon the message that God had given to them. See, the prophet Hosea, God told Hosea to go into to marry Gomer, the most unfaithful woman that he could find that Hosea was to go and find the most unfaithful woman that he could find so that it could be a picture to all of God's people of the picture of the faithful God married in covenant to the unfaithful people. And as often as Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, Hosea would go and he would pursue the unfaithful wife and he would restore her into his house and he would go and again and again and again and he would get her and it was a picture of God in pursuit of the unfaithful Israel. Ezekiel. You know what God told Ezekiel to do? You're talking about strange assignments? God told Ezekiel to go and to cook a meal over dung. This is in Israel. Nobody took their food laws. Nobody took their cleanliness more serious than Israel. Nobody took what they ate and how clean they were than the Hebrew people. And God told his prophet Ezekiel, go cook your meal over dung. Why would they do these kinds of things? To bring attention to the message of God. To show that God was saying something. To to speak and that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. It may seem out of character to us that Jesus would, would speak against this fig tree. It may seem out of character to us that that Jesus would curse something that is seemingly as innocent as a fig tree, but Jesus is bringing attention to what he has to say, to what the mission is that God has given to him. See, Micah chapter seven, the first seven verses, said that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. And it said that as he came into Jerusalem, that he would find the people busy there. He would find the temple full there but he would find no figs to eat. That he would, come into the, he would come into Judea, but he would find no godliness there. He would come into Judea, but there would be no love of God there. There would be sacrifice, but there would be no mercy. There would be worshipers, but no worship. <coughs> See, prophets, they didn't get the privilege of teaching in parables. They lived out parables. Hosea didn't get the privilege of teaching people about the prophet of God married to the unfaithful woman. He was the prophet of God married to the unfaithful woman. Jesus here is not simply teaching a parable. He is living out a parable. He is the one who will go as the ultimate high priest, lay down his life as a sacrificial lamb so that you and I might be redeemed. He is the one that will go and curse the fig tree in false, uh, because of the hypocrisy of the temple. He is the, he is the one that Micah spoke of that has come into Jerusalem and has found no fig to eat. He is living out the parables as the great prophet of God. So yeah, on the front end, sure the disciples didn't see it yet, but Jesus is bringing final and ultimate judgment upon the temple before he flips the tables, before he goes and causes the money changers coins to rattle across the ground. He's foreshadowing what is to come. He is announcing that it is too late for Israel. It is too late for the temple. Their hypocrisy will be judged, and it will be judged once and for all. For when Jesus came into the temple, he saw worshipers, but he did not see worship. He saw law, but he did not see grace. He saw sacrifice, but he did not see mercy. He saw busyness, but he did not see love. This past Sunday night, I had a, a group of people in our home, and we were talking about the sermon. And I asked them, I said, what, is, what, do you, what do you think would cause Jesus to flip over the tables in our church? And one person said, hypocrisy. And you know, brothers and sisters, that's the truth. Jesus didn't just judge hypocrisy in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus judges religious hypocrisy today. Jesus loathes hypocrisy in his church just as much as Jesus loathes hypocrisy in the temple in the first century. Brothers and sisters, I want you to look at your life. How guilty are we of caring more about our prestige than our character? How busy are we with all of the activities of church and yet are we filled with a passion and a love for our Lord? Are we filled with sacrifice but no mercy? Do we come in week after week after week offering up mouthed words and seemingly perfunctory actions from a heart that is empty and distant and cold? Could it be that if the Lord Jesus was among us this morning, that he would say, Church, would you wake up? Church, would you come? Church, would you give me your heart? Church, would you love me? Church, would you give me mercy and not sacrifice? You see, he doesn't care how good you look he doesn't care how godly you appear he doesn't care what your mama thinks about you he doesn't care what your preacher thinks about you he doesn't care what your Sunday school teacher thinks about you he doesn't care if your kids and your grandkids and your husband think you're the godliest person in the whole wide world because he knows what's in your heart he knows what's in your heart He knows whether or not on Sunday morning you're putting lipstick on a corpse. He knows whether or not you're a whitewashed tomb that is sterling on the exterior, but on the interior is filled with dead bones. Are you filled with false religion? Are you a religious hypocrite that impresses all of your friends and impresses all of your family and impresses all of the people around you? Or do you love Christ? Do you love Christ? Do you come and look forward to being with God's people and singing God's praises and serving God's kingdom? come and and seek out ways to grow nearer to Christ? Do you repent and find repentance necessary? Do you find yourself praying and wanting to advance the causes of Christ? Do you seek in your life when you find the imperfections and find the flaws, not excuses but new ways to submit your life to Christ? Do you love Christ? Or, do you spend all of your time figuring out how to polish the exterior So that the temple is impressive. So that the world will awe and gawk. Brothers and sisters, Jesus judges the hypocrite. Jesus judges the hypocrite. The disciples of Christ are astounded by what they see that day. They didn't get it in the moment. But they come back. The next morning, they they arrive back at the scene, right? Right? And they see the the fig tree that they had witnessed the morning before. They had remembered. It comes back in their mind. They've watched as Jesus has flipped over the tables. And they come back and they see this fig tree. And it's withered. Now look, when we talk withered, okay, don't think like needs a drink of water. Don't think the limbs are are hanging a little low, okay? Think brown and brittle, like dead. Like Jesus said, never going to have fruit again. Jesus said, never going to help anybody again. Jesus said, gone, all right? This thing is dead. It was enough to catch the eyes of the disciples and for them to say, whoa, whoa. Matthew uses a word to describe the disciples that he typically saves only for the crowds that go and they see Jesus perform these incredible miracles. And watching them, Jesus inc- perform these incredible miracles, they said, and they are astounded. They are amazed by what they see. And he uses it here of the disciples. And it's kind of like mouth agape, drool, kind of running down the chin. Like, whoa, what just happened here? Right? And Jesus is caught off guard, or not caught off guard. Jesus takes this, and Jesus being ever the disciple maker, takes this opportunity, and he presses even deeper into the hearts of his disciples what he's doing here. He takes this opportunity and he presses even deeper into the, into the hearts of his disciples. What, what he wants them to see and what, what he wants them to get. He, he, he goes and he, and he steps back and he wants them to see the big picture of, of all that's happening. They're probably on the Mount of Olives, which is up against the, the Dead Sea. And Jesus says, you think this is impressive? You think this is impressive? this is a man, This is This is a fig tree. This is small potatoes, okay? This is, this is, we're talking about a dead tree that bears little bitty fruit, okay? This ain't even an apple tree. He says, you have faith in me. You follow after me. You commit yourself to me. You go where I'm going. You go where i send you. You do what I tell you to do. You walk in faith to me. You do not doubt in your heart. You'll tell this mountain to jump in that sea and it will go. See, here's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. My church will be greater than the temple. My church will be greater than the temple. That the community of my disciples, the community that I am building, the movement that I am starting, the movement that will not end, that will not stop, that the gates of hell will not prevail against, it will be greater than the temple you just saw, than the tables that we just flipped. But if you have faith in me, If you follow after me, if you go where I'm sending you, if you do not doubt, you won't be like the temple. You won't be like the fig tree. No, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. You won't be filled with false religion, you won't have external trappings. You won't be wearing cool hats and have cool ceremonies and be filled with sacrifices and pretty buildings and and have all the leaves but no figs. No, you follow me. You have faith. You know what? I'm going to be with you. My power is going to be with you. My spirit is going to dwell inside of you. Everywhere you go, you're going to walk in my authority. You're going to walk in my glory. And I am going to make sure you bear fruit. You won't be like the temple. You won't be like the fig tree. No, my church is greater than the fig tree. My church is greater than the temple. My church will bear fruit fruit. You will bear fruit. I want you to notice about what Jesus starts with here. So he's talking about fruit. Old Testament to New. Anytime the Bible talks about fruit, what's it talking about? It's talking about external, external, external visible signs of godliness, right? Jesus tells us you will know a tree by its fruit. Like it's not insignificant, you, you, A testament to your own salvation. Is there fruits of godliness in my life? Is there fruits of holiness in my life? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do Do I find myself pursuing after Christ? Those things are not insignificant. But Jesus, looking to his disciples, talking about fruit, things that are visible, things that are external, things that you can see, where does he start? Internal. Internal. Things that you can't see. See, in the temple, it was all external. They started external, they focused external, they were only external. They were skin deep. But Jesus doesn't start there. Jesus starts with faith, Jesus starts with doubt, Jesus starts with passion. Jesus focuses on prayer. Can you see any of those things? You can't see any of those things, those things are internal. Those things are the work of God in a man. Those are the things that are the work of God in a woman. Those are the work of God in a, in a child. Those are the work of God in a teenager. Those are the things that you can't measure. They're intangible. He says, no, I'm going to do a work in you, and it's going to be a work that is so great in you that it's going to pour out of you. And it's going to pour out of you with such force, with such energy, that it can literally throw mountains in the seas. No, you will bear fruit, not because you were strong or you were strong or you were smart or you were smart, but because I am God. And I will be with you. You are my church and I am your Christ and I will go everywhere that you go. And so Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach them about prayer, not the kind of prayer they would find in the temple. Not the kind of ritualistic, ostentatious, stand on the street corners, stand on the pinnacle of the temple and pray so everybody will see me pray. Pray so everybody will hear me pray. No, not that kind of prayer. No, the kind of prayer that God will honor. The kind of prayer that, that says to this mountain, no, jump into the ocean. Why, why would Jesus use prayer? Prayer is the clearest demonstration of faith in the Christian life, isn't it? Prayer. Because you're praying to a God you can't see, about things that you can't control to do things that you can't do. That's pretty much faith. That's pretty much faith. Do you want to know the main reason that God doesn't answer our prayers? Because we don't pray. You know what Jesus said? You do not have because you do not ask. And look, when I, when I say pray, I'm not talking about nursery rhymes. I'm not talking about stuff that you get through ritualistically like the Pharisees did at the end of the day just so you can get to sleep as fast as possible. I'm not talking about, hey, making, making sure that the guy that prays the fastest is the guy that prays over the mill so that you can blow through that and, and get to the hash browns. No, when I'm talking about praying, I'm talking about praying in faith. That means pleading with God day after day after day until you know that the presence of God is with you. And when you know that the presence of God is with you, then you will go and do the things for God that you wouldn't do by yourself because you know that God is with you. And when God is with you, you'll go where you ordinarily wouldn't go because God is with you now. And God will give you the power. And God will give you the strength. And God will give you the wisdom. And when God is with you, you will go. That's praying in faith. When's the last time you did that church? You know, I'm repenting as your pastor. I have not been a faithful spiritual leader to you. I have not led us to be a a praying church well. I don't think, as I've I've thought about this week, I've asked myself, how have I led our church to pray well? I just don't have many good answers for that. But we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it. Not because I'm a great pastor. Not because we have great elders. I think we do have great elders. But because Christ is with us. And Christ will make us fruitful. Christ will make us fruitful. And He has revealed that to us. He has shown that to me. He has made that clear. What if your marriage became exactly what you were currently praying for it to become? What kind of marriage would you have? What if God answered every prayer that you're praying? What impact would your life have on the kingdom of God right now? What if your children became exactly who you were pleading with God for them to become? What kind of impact would they have on the kingdom of God? Church, are you praying? Are you praying? Are you pleading with him by faith? So much so that you know that the presence of God is with you. And the presence of God being with you, you say, all right, God, I'll go wherever you send me. I'll do whatever you want me to do because I know that you're with me. No, I'm not smart enough. No, I'm not strong enough. No, I can't do that. But God, here's what I'm willing to do. And I think this is what Jesus is calling for us to do. This is what I'm calling for us to do, Iron City Baptist Church. Jesus is calling for us to back ourselves into a corner with God and say, God, I'm going to back myself into a corner. I'm going to jump into the deep end and I can't swim. Either you're going to th- come through for me or I'm going to drown. Either you're going to Either you're going to deliver me from this crisis, either either you're going to come through, or I'm going to be a total and utter disaster and failure. That's what it means to live by faith. Brothers and sisters, the prosperity gospel has had this passage for way too long. It's time for us to take it back. It's time for us to, we shouldn't be afraid of this passage. This isn't talking about airplanes. This isn't talking about Bentleys and Benzes. This is talking about Acts. This is talking about being able to stand and sing hymns to God while people are throwing rocks at your face. This is talking about being locked in prisons and being having joy there and watching doors open and you walking out in glory. This is talking about planting churches when you got no money. This is talking about doing things and watching God do the miraculous when none of it makes sense. It's talking about backing yourself into a corner with God and watching God do the things that only God can do. Living in momentary, moment-by-moment, faith, confidence, and trust in God and God alone. You see, here's what I think. I think every single one of you that are a Christian believe that prayer is powerful but I wonder how many of you have ever actually experienced the power of prayer. I believe every single one of you that if you're a Christian, you believe that God is mighty and you believe that God is sovereign and you believe that God is on the throne. But how many of you have actually experienced the power of prayer? And if you've experienced it, brothers and sisters, is it the exception in your life or is it the rule? Because I don't believe that God intends his church to live in the exceptional prayer, but in the rule of prayer. Think about the Old Testament saints. Moses. God tells him to go and deliver the people of Israel. He runs up to the edge of the Red Sea. The edge of the Red Sea. The mightiest military in the world. Breathing down his neck. He is with a group of untrained untrained former slaves. They're on the edge of a sea, man. He's backed into a corner with God. And what did God do? What only God could do. He parted the sea. They walked on dry ground. The enemy pursued them. The seas collapsed. And the army of God defeated the greatest army in the world. Elijah. Elijah is a single man. 850 false prophets of Baal. Jezebel, a queen after his head. They go to, the, to Mount Carmel and they beat, the, and, and all the false prophets, 850, call on heaven and they cut themselves and make awful noises all the day long and just at about dusk, Elijah cries out with a single sentence of prayer. And like a missile against the darkened sky, the living God sends fire that consumes the altar and all of the false prophets with it. What did Elijah do? He backed himself into a corner with God. What about about David? David was a shepherd boy, the youngest in his family. He was the only one that his own father assumed couldn't be the king. In his day, the average man didn't make five feet tall. And he was sent out to fight a nine-foot giant. He stood there, took off all the armor because he couldn't wear it, looked up at this towering giant, all of his brothers, the king himself, assuming he was soon to die. And what did he do? He prayed, didn't he? He prayed. David backed himself into a corner with God, and God struck down the giant. Brothers and sisters, it's time for the church to stop living with our own wisdom, living by our own strength, living by our own resolve, and to start backing ourselves into a corner with God, jumping into the deep end where we can't swim our way out, and watching the Lord do the work, watching the Lord stand up for us, because the Lord has said that if you tell this mountain, to jump into the sea I am with you I will make you fruitful and I will tell the ocean to go the mountain to go what it is is it's living with a missionary heart it's living with a missionary heart missionary heart cares more than some think is wise risks more than some think is safe dreams more than some think is practical and expects more than some think is possible. Brothers and sisters, that's not the missionary heart. That is the Christian heart. That is the disciple's heart. That is what it is to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to back yourself into a corner with God so that all of your family thinks that you're crazy. So that all of your neighbors think that you're crazy. So that all of your friends think that you're crazy. So that the only answer that you can give to any of them is to just smile and say, all I can tell you is that God said it and I'm going to do it. God said it and I'm going to do it. And I know that the Lord will use me and the Lord will send me and the Lord will work because God has said, I will bear fruit. He Is with me. But Jesus says, do not doubt. If you're like me, you ask, How? How do I not doubt? This past Wednesday, I doubted that Jesus could use somebody that's as messed up as I am. On Thursday and Friday, I doubted that Jesus would still provide. On Saturday, I doubted that when I got unexpected news that Jesus was already expecting it. So what do we do when we face doubt? How do we pray without having that, but probably not, in the back of our minds? Brothers and sisters, when we pray, when we back ourselves into a corner with God, we must pray not by starting with Jesus and ending with Jesus, but filling it with Jesus by praying as though we're mindful of Christ, the risen Christ, the glorified Christ, the supreme Christ of all creation who is holding all things together all of the time throughout our prayers. Stop thinking of ourselves as we pray, in other words, and continue to think of Christ. For as often as I think of me, for as often as I think of how weak I am, for as often as I think of how smart I am, for as often as I think of how able I am, for as often as I think think of me, I fail. For as often as I think of me, I am weak. For as often as I think of me, I want to cower down. But as often as I think of Christ and who Christ is and what Christ has done and where Christ is going and who Christ has made me and where Christ is taking me, oh brothers, my doubt goes away. My doubt goes away. So as you feel doubt creeping in like it did on me this week, Preach to yourself Christ. Preach to yourself Christ. The Christ who overcomes the one who isn't strong enough. The Christ who does provide in every situation and circumstance. The the Christ who not only expects what's coming tomorrow, but who's already there. Because brothers and sisters, Christ doesn't just curse the fig tree. Christ throws the mountains, and we with Him. Let's pray together.